I think something like 0.4% of the world's refugees are in Britain. Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantelle Lewis and Tiso Regis. Executively produced by Georgia Fori Addo. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today to be joined by Lucy Maybelin, who is a political sociologist whose research focuses on asylum, human rights, policymaking and the legacies of colonialism. She is the author of Asylum After Empire, Post-Colonial Legacies in the Politics of Asylum Seeking, which won the British Sociological Association's Philip Abraham Memorial Prize in 2018. She's also author of Impoverishment and Asylum, Social Policy as Slow Violence and Migration Studies and Colonialism with Joe Turner. Lucy, you have done so much. Hello, welcome to the show. Hello. We're really excited to have you on, Lucy, because you're going to be teaching us and doing some myth-busting for us on asylum-seeking and refugee policies in Britain, both historically and contemporary. I was really nervous about introducing your scholarship, Lucy, because you cover so much. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about what you do is you focus on, yeah, coloniality, decolonisation, empire, and its relationship to asylum and refugee status. And that's interesting because... If you're thinking about ma- the mainstream or if you're thinking about how the government talks about um, asylum seekers and refugees, it's always in a way that is kind of presentist and isn't considered um, within its sort of vast history. Or even if it is considered within its vast history, it's one that romanticises it or romanticises Britain as, as a place that's always helped people globally so I think that your research and your writing is is really important for putting that critical but historical um emphasis on asylum seekers and refugees thanks <laughs> yeah no it's not just in the media that it's dehistoricized when I first started doing my my PhD which I started in 2009 which looked at asylum in the context of colonial histories if you went to any book on refugees in the library, and there are lots of them, none of them would have colonialism or decolonization in the appendix of the book. Those kinds of histories were completely divorced in any kind of discussion um, from what's going on now with people seeking asylum. And I think in part that's because this is a legal category. It's not a community of people who necessarily have anything in common except for making an application, a bureaucratic application to a state. Um, and having been displaced, but for like lots of different reasons. For policymakers, it's easy, but also for many scholars, that then is something that becomes divorced from histories of colonialism, from racism. So we had this like big literature on ethnic and racial studies and racism, which is really like rich and in-depth, but then this big literature on refugees, which is kind of never mentions the word race, never talks about racism, never talks about colonialism. So when that came to the some of the history, the refugee histories, the general story is that all of the rights that we have, we have mainly because we're citizens of a state. During the Second World War, millions of people were displaced and they found that if you were Um, persecuted if you left your country of origin and went to uh, a foreign country, you essentially had no rights because you weren't a citizen of that state. So Hannah Arendt called that, you lost the right to have rights at all. You were just a stateless person. So after the Second World War, the European powers and other world powers got together to introduce a regime of human rights that would be available to people that they would have recourse to, even if they were outside of their country of origin and their state had persecuted them. And so the general story within refugee studies and and um, kind of studies of asylum is that there was this convention on refugee rights, which was part of this package of rights for human beings, just because of the way things were at that time where most of the refugees were, it happened to just be for um, European people displaced. 
And then in 1967, everybody noticed that there were people being displaced from other places. So then they expanded it kindly, just because that was the sensible thing to do. And that's how refugee rights sort of emerged. But in my work, I wanted to kind of revisit that period. Like it's interesting that you have this regime of human rights and then you start having exclusions from it, obviously. Um, And so what we really learned from looking at the documents and the negotiations of where those that right to asylum would actually apply, where you would be able to um, have this whole suite of rights, which includes you can cross a border without a proper documents, you can you can't be pushed back to your country of origin, all kinds of rights that would protect refugees. It was actually um, really hard won at the UN that that would be just for European people displaced before 1951. And there were, obviously, we're probably not surprised to know that that was the colonial powers and the settler colonies that wanted that, that had a territorial application clause inserted into the Refugee Convention. The kind of powerful, strong, vocal objectors were formerly colonised countries, like India and Pakistan, for example. And then actually in 1967, when it was expanded, it wasn't because people suddenly noticed there were some other refugees. It was because decolonization was unfolding. The African Union was becoming more powerful. They wanted to have their own refugee convention because decolonization caused massive displacements and issues and problems. And so they expanded it to kind of push off that, that threat of other kind of competing conventions. For me, I think history is so powerful and amazing. And in some ways, I'm like a frustrated historian but I don't just want to like tell an extra story in the past to kind of add into the pile of stories. I think this really can teach us so much about what is now going on today. In the kind of period after 1967 and up to the end of the Cold War, really most of the people who were seeking asylum in Europe were European people fleeing um, the Soviet Union. And it was only really when these really restrictive Uh, a kind of really restrictive asylum regime of the kind that we have now started to be introduced, which was what I'd kind of started my PhD being interested in and then thought about looking at some of the historical background and then just got lost in a a long and complex colonial history. At the point at which people started seeking asylum in Britain, but also across Europe from formerly colonised countries, essentially, people from the third world or the global south or whatever the kind of symbolic geography um, that you want to use to refer to it, when they started to be racialized as black and brown, then they came to be seen as this crisis problem. Um, Then their motivations, whether they were economic or purely political, became the focus of obsession. And that was the, the kind of moment in which we started to have what became later the hostile environment. If we were sort of to look at like a decade in which that racialization of um, refugees and asylum seekers started, where would you sort of pinpoint that? It started about 2001. It was when David Blunkett was in the Home Office. There started to be a huge moral outrage crisis in the tabloid newspapers about bogus asylum seekers. So now they talk a lot about illegal migration, that's a kind of extension of that previous language of bogus asylum seekers, was an obsession with bogus asylum seekers. So if all of these people are claiming asylum um, from uh, from these countries and they are racialized people, they must not be real refugees. They must be economic migrants in disguise if they're coming from poor countries. started to be mainstreamed and um, the Home Office and David Blunkett came under massive pressure to do something about this. And so this really precipitated a whole series. I think there were something like nine rafts of primary legislation in a really compressed amount of time. There was a huge amount of legislation and that did all sorts of things. It, It took people in the asylum system out of the mainstream welfare benefit system and then steadily over time decrease the welfare benefits until we're at a stage now where people who are in the asylum system receive around 50% of job seekers allowance and the amount that they receive is around is um, calculated on the basis of what the poorest 10% of british citizens spend on essential living items only so it's about a third to half of what 
the poorest citizens receive. So they did all these things to welfare. They removed the right to work. Um, they reduced appeal rights. Um, they introduced a dispersal system so people couldn't choose where to live anymore. So they're dispersed to a city on a no choice basis. And then that was outsourced to private companies. So they now would be placed in the poorest housing stock, very poor housing conditions in very poor areas of cities with lots of um, housing availability. What else did they do? They massively expanded immigration detention, introduced detained fast track so that asylum applications would be uh, speeded up. They introduced mandatory reporting so people have to go to a, a police station and report on a regular basis like um like if you were on probation or a whole load of things basically to make life as horrible as possible for people who are in the asylum system basically on the basis that they are probably not really people who've been persecuted one of the things that i'm really interested in is how this the dehumanization of people that are seeking asylum and um, have refugee status, how that becomes mobilised as something that is deserving. Because it's just so, like the things you're describing now, like they're just so awful, ugly, yeah, dehumanising practices and processes, but they're so normalised. And the government has been able to rationalise to the quote-unquote public that this is who we are, this is what we do. Along with the racial lines and that we all understand, these people are an anathema because they are they are stateless, they are rootless. That's the complete antithesis this period of nation building is about. So these people represent an ambiguity that can't fit into the state logics. So what do you do with them? You left somewhere where you were something, you were a citizen of a place and you've come to another place. Now, you're not, you're not from here and you're not from there. So where are you from? And the logics of the state, the logics of the nation find it hard to reconcile. People have argued that it's, this is like a byproduct of the nation state system, that you have a system of states where people are citizens of states. And so because of that, you will have people who are outside of it and then they will be a problem to be solved. I think there's something more sinister about it that links to the kinds of colonial logic. So it's like the kinds of things that are happening in the English Channel and the Mediterranean, tolerability of allowing people to die or creating the conditions for them to die in deserts and drown in seas, etc. The idea that, like, if we flip it, so if French and German people were dying in large numbers in the Mediterranean and you took away search and rescue um, missions, and then you started putting in prison fishermen who rescue them. That would be utterly unthinkable, just utterly unthinkable. So I think that there is a sort of a baseline framework of dehumanization where there's a, a readiness to think of some lives as worth less than other lives and as as kind of fundamentally disposable and illegitimate. There's no kind of logical solution to this. It's not like, oh, okay, so maybe it's because asylum seekers cost too much, or maybe it's not that, that the amount of money they spend on um, the architecture of border control is absolutely mind-boggling. And the numbers are relatively small. You know, we've got almost historic lows of people claiming asylum in the UK now. But still the kinds of policies keep coming, even if they more and more and more expensive. So I don't think it's I don't think it's just a byproduct of the state system and that makes people uncomfortable. I think that there is a readiness to see some people as not quite human and as disposable and as abusable in a way that there isn't other people. And I think that we can only understand that by looking at the kinds of things that were tolerated during the colonial period. It also plays into the deeper kind of philosophical thinking of the West, a mobility around elitism. So the certain bodies can move certain places in certain spaces. And this kind of thinking affects the kind of notion of time. We don't think of asylum as a long history. We just think of it as something that's happening now and we don't speak about it in terms of what's happened in the past. 
So this elitism affects everything. So I don't know, I was thinking a bit in terms of how, for example, the current scandal around this kind of global capital, this money that's going everywhere, these people can go everywhere and do anything. But brown and black bodies, their mobility has always been limited. So when we're speaking of like this fear of the cosmopolitan elite, who are we speaking about? Sorry, fear of the cosmopolitan, it's the elite that don't get away with it, but the people at the lower end, they're seen as the threat. When it's not what what I think is really interesting about that that is that and just going back to your point about two thousand and one and David Blunkett, Lucy, is that you have this kind of both governmental media, also journalistic sort of endorsement of the dehumanization of refugees and asylum seekers, and then you have like entered into the kind of public discourse or the everyday vernacular the um idea of scroungers renewed emphasis on who is accessing welfare sort of really played on my mind when you said when you said 2001 because I think there's like a real linear trajectory as to how dehumanization of asylum seekers and refugees gets becomes coalesced within this discourse around um, working class, quote unquote, scroungers as well, and how this all like builds up in constant dehumanisation of working class, uh, working classness in the UK, where I think it's interesting thinking about Tiso's point about global corruption and the elite is that it's so much easier for people to dehumanise the 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 very vulnerable people we're talking about and find ways to justify that in comparison to these extremely wealthy people that are literally having a laugh and stealing extracting um so yeah and and people find ways to justify that whereas they can't find ways to to be both compassionate and empathetic to people fleeing from war and persecution it's that kind of juxtaposition which obviously a lot more sophisticated scholars have been able to write about this than me just talking about this on the podcast but yeah when you're talking talking about this Lucy and giving us the detail in this way it does really bring um shine a light on how awful these disparities really are and how much we're willing to have our like sign up to with regards to who gets uh who is allowed to be a belong as a citizen in Britain Mm -hmm. yeah I really agree I've been thinking a lot recently about whose mobility is a problem because some people's mobility is a problem like if we think about COVID-19 how is it spread so fast around the world by people who make short circular journeys all the time all over the world two-day business trips a thousand miles away mini breaks like circulating so really privileged people from covid to causing climate change are a problem for us all but the kinds of mobilities that are relentlessly problematized the people whose ships are not allowed to dock in case they're infected with covid19 that happened a lot with refugees during the pandemic even people fleeing from africa when there wasn't a case of covid19 on the continent of africa yet and yet Greece was overrun. So it's like um, the kinds of mobilities that become cast as a problem now. And again, going back into the past, you know, colonialism, settler colonialism, kind of bringing genocide and death and destruction. But that is the time in which actually the curtailment of people who are being subjected to colonial practices, that's when we get the sort of invention of controls to control their mobility because it comes to be seen as a problem. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot in that, actually, Tiso. And, yeah, I to- totally agree about the connections between scroungers because people in the asylum system are not allowed to work. And then so they're kind of produced as scroungers. And then because that seemed to be too expensive to give them enough to live on, it gets reduced and reduced and reduced till they're in a kind of situation of real abjection. But then if they are given refugee status, then they kind of move into another category of the undeserving poor, you know, and, and find themselves in that that kind that whole other not privileged position at all. 
just just for the purpose of um just doing our kind of like myth busting um on these matters could you just do like a brief sort of explanation of um asylum and refugee status like the legal terminology and how one one is able to stay yeah so it has become really as as the state loves to do it's become really really complex with lots of different statuses but in the most simplest terms if you arrive in the UK and you make an application for asylum um, you are then an asylum seeker Um, so you're just a person who's made an application and is waiting for the result. How long can that take? That can take a long time. It can take a really long time and even it's so it can take a long time for that initial decision kind of I don't know it just is very variable from kind of three months to um six years or so it can take a long time mm. but then also because if it's rejected you can appeal like the whole process can go on and on but if you are successful if you they recognize that your application for asylum meets the criteria of the definition of persecution so there's a definition of persecution contained within um of, of what sort of categories are included in the refugee convention but it's it's relatively broad and loose so states can decide how they would interpret that. So over the years since 2002, that definition has got narrower and narrower and the requirement for evidence has got higher and higher. So, you know, people need documentary proof, photos. They need to have gathered all of this information and documentation before they arrive in order to then be successful. They go through the assessment procedure and if it's You know, if they were a high level opposition politician and there's loads of media coverage and half of their family were publicly killed and it's very, very sort of straightforward, then they might be successful quickly or it might take longer. But they um, then you don't no longer get refugee status. You get a temporary um, leave to remain for five years and then it's assessed. You have to kind of reapply every five years to see if you it's still not safe for you to return. So there's a kind of temporariness, a kind of deportability uh, built into that. Um, Either you're successful if your application for asylum is refused. Again, there have been various tiers of appeal rights. Now um, they're trying to reduce it as much as possible, I think, in the new plans to just one opportunity to appeal. And then there's also if so you can appeal a decision, but then you can also um, apply to make a fresh claim if you have new evidence and that, that fresh claim for asylum, then you you can um, go through that process. I mean, it, it, like, it all becomes really convoluted. You know, you start trying to explain in a simple terms, but then it's like, oh, but if this happens, then you could do this. And if this happens, it could do that. I think it's um, Leia Basil um, who talks about this process and time citizenship and time and getting status and time and like that slow violence of time like even just listening to you talk now like I'm just like all these people's lives like just constantly oh and I think it's actually in um Migration City um Lesbat Shamsha Singer they talk about time as well and waiting for um information being like this slow violence yeah it's it's appalling it's appalling it is really violent in my last book impoverishment and asylum I was really looking at this welfare system and trying to think about this is connected to the kind of border violence we see where people are being kind of killed and allowed to die at borders but how it can this be thought of on a continuum of violence And I was really thinking about that slowly unfolding harms where people get physical and mental harms and damage to their bodies from years of living in poverty or being just being subjected to the stress of waiting and uncertainty. The Home Office was really super inefficient and bad at communicating and doesn't have good customer service, I think it's fair to say. I think this plays into the whole idea of who, who has value, who is a human. The kind of process keeps the person, the human being, in that indeterminate space, that limbo. So it's almost like, like in some of the stuff that I, you said over, Lucy, about being offshore, it's an indeterminate space. So once I class you as a citizen of here or a citizen there, you have rights and there's a legal process and there's recourse and, that, and the state might have to say, uh, might, might have to, to apologise or there might have to be 
a kind of an, a genealogy digging into the history of why we why we've come to this place. But by keeping you in this indeterminate space, I deprive you of being a human. So therefore, the human rights thing goes out the window. The Geneva Convention goes out the window. But yeah, absolutely, I really agree. And I think part of the aim that well, no, the ex- one of the explicit aims of these kinds of policies, apart from seeking to deter people that haven't arrived yet from coming here, so to remove pull factors, another um, aim is to prevent people from integrating in the government's terms, but just from living their life, putting down roots, you know, meeting people, making friends, all of the kinds of connections that might make it hard to remove somebody later. So making life deeply hard and unpleasant so that you're highly removable later. And they don't care that your time is wasted or years of your life are wasted because that's the explicit policy aim to make it horrible and hard. (laughs) So I think it's different to the offshore in the sense that the things that are being proposed now are literally to remove people to an imagined place elsewhere or not even imagined an actual place elsewhere, a disused oil rig or a disused ferry or another country or a kind of an island in the Pacific Ocean where you are literally offshored, so you're disappeared. Your kind of your hands can be washed of actually having to support or help that person, even if it costs you loads to put them in a prison um, on an island. They're connected on a continuum. Yeah, may, maybe I'm not. Maybe it's not different. Now I talk. I think <laughs> that there's something so akin, isn't there, to just trying to make people socially disappear yeah. into not leave their houses and. I was thinking in terms of in terms of the impact it has on the psyche of the individual, like identity yeah. plays part of human human being. So if you have no identity, no no ability to put their roots in, in a community or somewhere, your status is always indeterminate. So the state doesn't view you as as an official entity, but also informally and socially, you find it hard to integrate because you're always scared you're going to be removed. So you can't put down those roots that make you human. Yeah. This kind of ties into kind of old classic arguments of human rights, like ties into the argument that they had at the start of the um, War of Independence and the rights of man. Like these rights, they're too abstract. And people want to kind of, governments want to localise these things, saying rights belong to citizens of this place, but this human rights brings everyone up to a status of equality that the world's not even ready for, right? It's a moral equality, right? So we, we should see each other as humans, but we have a problem of seeing this of seeing this through i'm feeling slightly exacerbated um apologies listeners you can probably hear it in the tone of my voice because i can't see how we are going to get the general public to not see this as inhumane something that we shouldn't be doing that the conflation with migration asylum nationalism racism all this stuff is just in this messy ball where like people feel like there is there is a nativist belonging to Britain should not be extended to anyone beyond these borders and the, this island. So when you're talking about this very these very extreme things that are likely to happen, putting people in on islands. Um, I mean, obviously they do this in Australia. I can see people signing up to this and saying, yeah. I know there are so many people that work really hard at democratising information and fighting for the rights of the people that we're talking about. I know that. But I just I'm thinking about just sort of very everyday conversations that I have with people. And I I, I think we're at a, a low point in terms of how whether we categorise people as human. When I've interviewed people in in. Um the Home Office, who writes sort of policy documents and press releases and things, they say that, you know, what we do is we put this few sentences where we say this exact same few sentences, Britain has a long history of uh, receiving refugees and giving them refuge and we respect people and we're lovely and welcoming and hospitable and it's always been our tradition. For example, kindred transportees and Huguenots. And then they go on to say, but there are these cheating, nasty, bogus, scrounging people who want to cheat our system and they're undermining the system for these genuine, lovely refugees um, and for you citizens. And so now we need to clamp down on that. And they say, 
you know, for most people that will never meet anybody who's been through the asylum system and won't know the details of this, that's enough for them. That sounds nice. You're just protecting the system so we can really look after these vulnerable people and we can make sure that we stop these horrible cheaters from abusing the system and undermining it. It is challenging to think about breaking through that. And there are kind of different strategies that, you know, even though I'm critical of human rights for how it's been exclusionary, it really is the only sort of discourse that is available in which we're not talking about being kind and nice and charitable and just because we're good. Well, we're just talking about respecting people and giving them the rights access to the rights which we all hope that we would all have if something happened to us here that we would be able to go somewhere else and they would treat us with respect and due process um so it's sort of the only kind of discourse we have but obviously um the government itself is not committed to human rights or positive about human rights and has spent many years trying to undermine that as something that is also abused and problematic but I do think as as well that the alternatives come from below you know like there's so many movements that you think of like the whole way that we think and talk about disability is totally transformed from like 50 years ago and the whole way we think and talk about gender is completely transformed I feel like it's not like one idea or one quick thing. It's the old, like the whole, what we need is a t- completely alternative way of thinking and talking about these things. And it probably will come from social movements. Like if you think about things like defund the police, like last year from, I'd never heard of that at the beginning of the Black Lives Matter kind of protests and everything. And Black Lives Matter has had such a big, even though we're like living through the backlash now, which we knew would come, it's had such an amazing impact on transforming the way a lot of people think about things that they hadn't thought about previously in their everyday lives. And I know that it's not like defund the police is like a mainstream idea now, but it is a really radical idea that now more people know about. And the more you learn about it, you're like, oh, that sounded really crazy. But now actually it sounds so sensible when you think about it. And and I think that those kinds of shifts where conversations bubble up and emerge and happen at various tipping points and then slower periods and faster periods. And I think it's a generational shift of ways of talking about things. See, like frames of reference, citizens of the UK or American citizen gets in trouble overseas. They don't say, can you free me in, in frame of the human rights? They will say, I'm an American citizen. I'm a UK citizen. And it's on on a national basis, they're seeking to get extricated from whatever situation they're in. But someone from the global south, they always make kind of claims of human rights rather than their nation rights. So they're suggesting to me there's a, a, an indoor elitism in the kind of global system, right? It infects everything else. It infects human rights. So there's a hierarchy of rights. There's a hierarchy of mobility. And all in this is this idea that if my natural rights as a British person overrides everything else so as a british person if i go somewhere i need to be treated in a certain type of way and that frame of reference is so strong it's trying to unpick that because there's a sense of security that someone gets from that that if, if i go to another place where i don't have any kind of natural jurisdiction or any kind of power i'm going to be okay even a working class person who will go on holiday and you'll see it when you go to spain you see them walking around in their british shorts and their expat communities there's a sense of safety in there so yeah, I'm trying to kind of rewrite those frames of references. I mean, I would, but T, I would say, I would actually say on that though that that in itself is racialized as well because it depends who you are. Yeah, so I think that. that yeah. So I think that I, I see your point, um, but I also think that coming back to Lucy's points on the histories of um, colonialism and how that links to how we're thinking about and talking about. Um, asylum and refugee status now is more than elitism it's about the histories of extraction isn't it it's about the histories of enslavement it's about the histories of that hierarchy of the human and how we live with those the afterlife of that is you can see that within the home office is what your your scholarship I think sort of points to like Julian Assange claimed asylum, didn't he, in the Ecuadorian embassy? So there are instances of that. And I think 
I think we have to be careful not to say that people from the global south always have recourse to human rights because lots of them do feel protected by their states. But the ones that are, so then the question is, who is brought to our attention as a person who's making a human rights claim here against against their state? And how is the global south or the third world or whatever kind of word do you want to use to describe that imagined place? How is this diversity of, of people and countries? How are people in those countries represented to us in Britain and what and as living in unstable, poor, you know, because so actually research finds that that having a being living in a low income country, it's not enough to make lots of people from that country apply for asylum anywhere. You have to have ongoing wars, known human rights abuses, civil wars, genocides for people to start applying for asylum. So there are loads of peaceful places where people are happy to live and feel secure in relation to their government or their citizenship. But the but the way that that kind of large sways of the world are represented to us is as though everyone wants to come here because it's better here and they all want to make an asylum claim. The argument that, that one of the kind of right arguments is that people come to this place, they don't they skip past all the other places in Europe and come here because the UK is so great and you can make loads of money. I spent this whole period of time working on this pull factor thing because it is the only main sole reason they give for making people's lives as hard as possible. And so I was just trying to untangle it and work out what was what it like so my overarching kind of research interest is like what do policymakers think they're doing? Like, how do they imagine the world? Like, and what makes them do these things in our name on our behalf kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And so I was really trying to think in that about how do they imagine asylum seeking? What do they think happens? Mm. So they imagine in this pull factor thing that someone is in their country of origin and they have access to perfect information about a range of possible countries in their language that they speak and all of the different policies, like what the levels of welfare support, if you can work, what kind of housing you get, all these things. And then they select one, like they're shopping for a country. And then they're like, okay, I'm in Damascus. I've chosen the UK. It looks brilliant. I'm just going to go there and I'll just fly there and claim asylum. And that, and then if it's horrible, when I get there, I'll tell all my friends and none of them will come here. And that just completely misconstrues what journeys which end up with an asylum claim are like. So you have people with highly variable access to resources. Like I tried to map the different welfare and work rights across Europe and it was effing nightmare, like accessing all these government websites in different languages. They're all badly designed. It's really complex. Um, So even like when it's my full time job, just trying to compare them is really difficult. So people then also can't get on a plane from Damascus to the UK because apart from the war, but if they're in a country with working um, air, airports, then there are carrier sanctions. So they wouldn't be allowed to board because they were didn't have a visa for the UK. So then you have to take an extremely long and arduous journey. You encounter border guards, humanitarian actors, you get encamped, half your family drowns, you lose your bag with all your money, you meet someone and fall in love, you fall into enslavement in Libya, just all sorts of things happen to you. And you're totally reliant on like smugglers and people that you don't know if you can trust. And they will say, okay, well, I can't get you there, but I can get you here or here. And, or they don't give you a choice and you wake up and you're like, where am I? And they say you're in Berlin kind of thing. So it's a really like complex, messy, you could talk about preferences, but not choices. And the idea that then if we make life horrible here, it'll send an imaginary message on some web portal which compares the life of people seeking asylum in a particular country. Like Often people don't know there's a process of seeking asylum, like where you have to go through a whole system. They just think they'll arrive and they'll start working kind of thing. It's um, So there's a total fantasy, basically. I think what's interesting about what you're, what you're talking about there Lucy and the and the fantasy, the quote unquote pull factor, 
and how it gets sort of rehashed within the media or by government or by the um, Home Office. And thinking here about sort of Sivanandan, thinking about Stuart Hall, thinking about Gaminda Bambra and thinking about like the sort of um, we are here because you were there. I am the sh- I'm the sugar in the bottom of your tea. The new the new book by Ian Sanjay Patel about immigration and the end of empire. What I think is really interesting is the possibility of our social movements beginning to reframe Britain as never being this island nation. It's always been part of this global economy, movement of people. It's always been global. Like these are these are arguments that people, yeah, again, a lot more sophisticated arguments have been made. Yeah, look at obviously um, more recently Gaminda Bambra's work, but if you tell if if you say to the people that say I don't want scroungers coming here or they're coming here taking doing this doing that and it's like even if we're going to just humor this for one second and we're going to engage in some political education to try and bring people with us on understanding what is actually happening it is actually quite straightforward explain to people how extractive and how much Britain has both enslaved and um, taken from across the world. Now, if we can create that sophisticated argument to help explain why, and that's not even, I'm not even going into detail about war, be it like Britain's role in war and the arms, and that being a massive reason why people need to um, flee countries, Britain's involvement. The reason why I'm saying all these things is because I do think we can make a kind of sophisticated argument to everyday people about understanding that this is part of the this is part of Britain's legacy. And we we are we've never been separate from this. Mm. Um, And that's why it's important that we both are conduct ourselves in a way that does not dehumanize people um, in the way that the Home Office does through these policies. But this is where the question comes in, isn't it? Because if they still, if you still make that sophisticated argument about Britain always being this global entity, it's never been this island nation. And if they then say to you, that doesn't count, or they say to you that what you are saying does not matter because this is how things are now, then that's where you've got race operating and that's where we know or race and class or imperialism operating that's where we know that we can't bring them with us so Tiso's point earlier point in the episode about elitism make a choice you have to make a choice now because I'm going to explain to you why you've got your quote-unquote people coming to to Britain and why we have to make space for people and why it's important and I'm going to explain it to you in a way that is embedded in your arguments Lucy about colonialism and empire and if you still tell me that you do not want to see this then you have made your choice and we know where the lines are. Yeah absolutely I mean I do think I do think it's a massive challenge um I mean, public opinion is generally relatively positive about people seeking asylum, like actually in opinion polls. But then you get kind of the Nigel Farage breaking point kind of mm-hmm. motifs and um, and stuff. But I, I think starting from a position of interconnection, like Gaminda Bambra's Connected Histories, I think that gets us so far, like just as an analytical starting point, but also a kind of political starting point of understanding the world as always already interconnected and not as like some separate island. I think we're missing a point that alongside this is our neoliberal logics, like policymakers and the the imagination that, that they have is that they see the world through neoliberal logics. So it's the free market, right? So people are rational actors individual rational actors yeah and they're going and they're making a choice so that's the imagination that we have in the west that these people are making a choice a rational choice to leave wherever they leave i don't need to know the reason but they're, they're making a choice and so therefore if i make it difficult for them this is this is the imagination that sits alongside that that's what i'm saying so i'm saying to mm. you i'm going to mm. explain to you i'm going to sit down and explain to you why mm. your neoliberal argument does not work and why we have never all been starting from the same place i'm mm. going to break that down to you with both facts figures histories and representations of why our mo- uh, what our movements and extractions 
mean that we are in this we have this current situation now i'm going to explain that to you and i'm going to show you why the notions of rationality and neoliberalism do not work to this if i then explain that to you in a process of inclusive political education taking you through that and you still want to bring your the arguments about rationality and an elite and a clear elitism then that's where we depart and i guess i think the question now for 2021 and and beyond is which side are you on yeah i mean i don't know about which side are you on just because we have such divisive politics don't we at the moment and no, but Lucy, I'm breaking it down. I'm telling you, I'm like, I, mean. I get I it. Mean. I get it. I understand but, you think that. I understand that you think that people come into the country that are are trying to scrounge from you. But I'm going to explain to you very carefully mm. why they are not. Yeah, and but if, I think if you, know you I mean? did that, if you did actually, <laughs> I do it. I do do it, but it doesn't work. It, it's <laughs> not. It doesn't work. But people do choose. They choose racism. They choose yeah, nationalism. If you get down to the nitty gritty of it, like there is a British exceptionalism, there is a racism, there is a nationalism. And unfortunately, that is what people often mm. will choose. Not always, not always. And that's why I think inclusive political education is important because there are so many people that we can take with us. There are yeah, so and, many. I mean, at the but, moment, there's almost no political education. No. There's, like, there's no trade unions left, really. No. You know, it's not a big part. Like when I, my family were always really involved, even my granny was involved in the Labour Party and I was always doing lots of political things as a child, I sort of not without thinking I was doing political things, but the like level of conversations about political yeah. stuff. But I think that sort of, um, th- there is no political education. I don't know if you learn in school anything about how does parliament work? How do elections work? How is policy made? Who are these parties? What do they do? What's voting? I, I didn't know any of that. I think I learned about that when I was doing my PhD. <laughs> but um, I let alone anything to do with colonialism and the actual history of our country. But I think the one thing that starts, that people are ready to listen to is the reality of a bit of perspective. Like nearly 90% of the world's refugees live in neighboring countries they don't come anywhere near this country and then we're a small island off the northwest of Europe we're really really hard to get to and the only reason people express a desire that they still would like to get here is because we have large diaspora communities of lots of nationalities they have friends and family and they would like to be with some people that they know but also because they know a bit of English because of colonialism and because they have this general idea that Britain is a fair place that respects the rule of law and human rights. So all of those things are reasons people express a preference, but still a teeny weeny weeny minority of people actually manage to make it here. I think something like 0.4% of the world's refugees are um, in Britain I think minimizing the scale, like de, what's the word, de-crisisifying the the situation, like there is there is no crisis. So at the moment, these new plans for immigration, they're quite different to the 2002, 2001-2 sort of shift that started because then the government were under a gigantic mountain of pressure from the from the press about bogus asylum seekers and everything. Like now we're coming out of the pandemic like concern about immigration is at an all-time low, really low numbers of people seeking asylum in Britain. It's just not like a massive problem. But they're introducing this raft of really kind of dystopian proposals for no reason, like to fight no crisis. There's no moral panic in the media. There's no, it. it's difficult to understand why they would do this for any other reason than I don't know what to distract from something or just because they are deeply racist in, in a really like to the core. Um, and so a bit of introduced, like because the government discourse is all about a crisis of illegal migration, just actually debunking the level and scale of the crisis. Like there is no crisis. And then what creates dangerous and deadly um, journeys 
is strict and tight border controls. So the more there are tight border controls, people can't just get in an aeroplane. You can get in an aeroplane from North Africa to Europe for like 100, 200 quid. It's like 2,000 pounds to go in a small dinghy and nearly die. So that's because of carrier sanctions. So these kinds of strict border controls create deadly journeys. And so if you're saying the solution to this is more border controls, okay, so that's not going to solve deadly journeys, irregular journeys. Um, and if you're saying that stopping people coming is going to like allow the Home Office to decide asylum cases faster, then surely an easier solution would be to do your job better and resource your administrative teams not to put a giant wave machine in the channel to try and drown people or, you know, it would be cheaper just to like hire more people to assess asylum applications than, than to open a prison on an island of the Pacific kind of thing. So like, I think none of it makes sense on its own terms, basically. Um, and minimizing that crisis is the only thing that I've really had much success in. Wow. Persuading people about. Yeah. Okay. That's a good place to end actually, because that's that's something that that the listeners can take away from this episode yes this is this is pretty awful stuff however if we're engaging in changing um how people view asylum and refugee um matters then contextualizing it getting perspective and de-catastrophizing it that's very good advice lucy in like movements that are concerned like all of the things that are happening to people in the asylum system so how did Windrush happen it happened because the things that were targeting people who were in the asylum system and people who'd failed started to leak out into other areas of home office policy so they start to mop up more and more of these people that they're identifying as illegal and that starts to suck up also citizens of the country so it's like I think also just setting aside all the racist people who probably don't care anyway, whether you change your mind on Tuesday or not, is thinking about this in the round, not just as something like separate, a separate legal category of people, but in fighting against deportations generally, um, you know, like to Jamaica and all of that kind of stuff that's happening and to the, the whole sort of home office state architecture of over-policing, of illegalizing people, even who are citizens, thinking of that all as a as one system that wraps up lots of different people and this being one part of it. Because people are made so invisible, often that doesn't get incorporated into sort of more like activist discussions about the racism of the state and the home office and the kind of policy stuff that they do. Wow. Oh, I didn't cheer you up, did I? <laughs> no, no, you did. It's good to talk about these things, and it is really good to do um, do these kinds of episodes that are very information focused as well. So pe- people can acquire the knowledge, people can learn more about how to engage in conversations, also about these matters as well. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us, Lucy. Thank you for coming on the show. That was absolutely brilliant. Oh, it's absolute pleasure you're proper sociology celebrities now so i know i've made it now i know i've made it no no (laughs) listeners we'll be back again next week thank you thank you for listening to surviving society with Chantal and tiso you can now continue the conversation with us on twitter and instagram if you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination please support us via Patreon. If not, you can always support us by sharing, subscribing, rating and reviewing. 